There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Zaleski, and today we're talking to Dr. Thaddeus Stappenbeck, Chairman of the Department of Inflammation and Immunity at Cleveland Clinic's Lerner Research Institute. As summer winds down, cases of COVID-19 are surging in various parts of the U.S., causing concern to medical professionals and hospital systems. However, the coronavirus vaccines have continued to roll out across the country, with the Pfizer version recently receiving FDA approval. Dr. Stappenbeck is here to update us on the current state of vaccination in the U.S., including the role of vaccine booster shots, the implications of different shots receiving FDA approval, and when children might be eligible for COVID-19 vaccination. So to start off, explain a little bit about your work at the Cleveland Clinic's Learner Research Institute. Sure. So my uh, so I had a department that that's that's very interested in uh, in trying to understand the root causes uh, and responses to uh, things like infections, whether they're bacterial, viral, um, or even autoimmune. So this 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 um, thinking about uh, COVID nineteen fits quite well into uh, into the work at Learner Research Institute. So as we're speaking today, a little over 50% of all Americans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. So what are the implications that only about half the population has this protection? Yeah, so first, it's great that we have that we're, we're to the 50% mark. I think this is, this is, a, a, this is important that, that we've gotten to this stage. Um, the, the problem is, is we're going to have to go, I think, much higher for, for the vaccine to be effective. Vaccines, uh, vaccines that, that this really comes down to the infectivity of the virus. So the initial strains that, that were called the Wuhan strain um, or the alpha strain, these were, if you were infected with this, you would typically infect maybe one or two other people. And this would define what's called an R naught um, for, the, for the virus. And if you, have, if you have an infectivity of one to two people, then a 50% uh, rate of infections actually would have, would have worked just fine. But as we're going to talk about uh, with with the virus uh, evolving and mutating, it's now more infectious. And the current strain of of uh, the SARS-CoV-2, which is this Delta strain, is much more infectious. Uh, so if you have if you're infected with Delta strain, you're you're likely to infect now as many as ten other people. So this is this makes the R naught now um, much higher, and 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 correspondingly to to uh, achieve full immunity in the population or herd immunity, as you probably heard, uh, we'll probably need, um, the estimates are between somewhere between 80 and 90% of the population uh, vaccinated. So this is very much like, very much like uh, measles virus, where we have to, again, this man, measles virus is a mandated uh, vaccine. And the reason why is because we have to have uh, such high percentages of people within the population that are vaccinated for it to be effective. It's not if it's not a very high percentage of the population, it won't be effective at all. So I, I take it the low vaccination rates in certain areas of the country are why we're seeing such a surge in cases. Are there any other reasons or factors why we are? 
Yeah, so if, so certainly, uh, certainly, uh, the, you can go almost go county by county, um, especially in the southeast, and see uh, you know where the virus is is, is surging. It's, it's in the counties where the vaccination growth rates are really low. In some cases, in some counties, as low as thirty percent. Um, again, hopefully, this will be will be coming coming up. Um, quickly, uh, it's probably not the the only reason for this. Uh, again, I think that there there's still we're still in a position uh, where we need to maintain some vigilance because of the infectivity of, of the virus. You still need we still need uh, some degree of of distancing and masking. So we're not um, we're not totally out of the woods on this. And the other the other piece of this is that that there's some concern that the, the immunity that many of us who have been vaccinated with in the winter time. Uh, this past winter, um, that immunity may be waning, and we may need another uh, another vaccination. So, what does that mean then? Obviously, because cold and flu season is going to be starting to kick in soon, and viral spreads generally get worse. So, what might kind of the relationship between that be? Yeah. So, what's very strange about that? So, so I think we're learning we're learning a lot about this particular virus. So, um, usually, you think of uh, of of coronaviruses as cold viruses, these these we've known about these for decades as just common cold viruses. Um, but um, and, and so you, typically we think of these as something um, that happens particularly in the, uh, the north where you where you see these really uh, prevalent in the in the winter time when when we have things like uh, influenza that are very prevalent. But everything seems to be kind of upside down as this pandemic has gone on, and uh, we're seeing spikes even in the summertime here uh, with this particular virus. So I think I think this is something that, that we can't just think of this as yet as a season uh, or a seasonal virus yet. This is something where we're still we're still looking at waves in a pandemic, and we need to respond um, appropriately. Um, for the flu, which is coming up again, uh, this is this is going to be very important to get um, influenza shots uh, when they become available this fall, uh, and th there's still the same recommendations there. So viruses in general are known to mutate. And, you know, each year, as you mentioned, the flu strain is different every year um, because of the previous year's strains, because it's mutated then. So why do these viruses evolve and change over time? Yeah, so so it really depends on the on the types of uh, viruses. So so influenza has has a bunch of different uh, uh, genes that kind of recom recombine with each other and form, form different strains. Um, the the SARS uh, viruses are RNA viruses, and this is this is a, 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 a this is a little different. So these um these are RNA viruses. They um the, these viruses replicate when they get inside of our cells. Um, there are certain types of viruses called DNA viruses where they use our replication machinery that we use to to have our own cells um, divide um, to to make copies of themselves. And, and because of that, the, the copies, your copies don't have as, as you know, that many mistakes. RNA viruses use their own, um, their own machinery. They encode their own machinery to make replicate replicates of themselves. And these, these replication machineries are very uh, prone to errors. So they, they basically, so think of it like, um, you know, doing some copying where you're trying to copy a, a particular, uh, words on a page. Um, the, the number of mistakes, that an RNA virus will make for each letter uh, is basically a million times the rate that we would see in the DNA virus or, or our own um, our own cells. So RNA viruses make a lot of mutations uh, as they're as they're copying uh, themselves. And what's very interesting then is with all these these mutations that emerge. Some of these mutations, of course, aren't viable uh, and they just disappear. But some of them um, actually will be selected for. Um, 
because they're more fit and they're more fit in the host. Uh, and then this is why this is why we've seen so many um, strains evolve that have uh, essentially better fitness within the host. Uh, they're more infective, uh, that sort of thing. So this is a this is a natural process of RNA viruses. Uh, this is what they do. Uh, and uh, and and what we're seeing is is really to be completely expected based on the biology. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Then why we're seeing because I think with COVID nineteen, everyone is you know there's the, the mutations are happening quicker, and I think people are concerned about it. But what how you just described it, it makes perfect sense. Why mm -hmm. we're seeing so many. Exactly. Yeah. This is not, this is I think the people who the, the the people that study viruses carefully, this is not surprising to them. So, you know, if people are being, you know, do happen to get infected with COVID-19, either a breakthrough case or otherwise, what sort of treatments are available to them? Yeah, so I think it's it's very important to know that, that um, you know, th there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot in the popular press about vaccines and how important they are and talk about how important it is to get vaccinated. But if you do happen to get infected, uh, whether you are, or not you happen to be uh, vaccinated, there are, um, there are treatment options that are available. There are monoclonal antibodies uh, that have now been made by several companies that are quite effective, um, and you can you can get um, treated with these. So the the key is is if you get an infection, contact your doctor, be in contact with your uh, with your doctor, and then if you have um, the appropriate symptoms, if you're having trouble, any trouble breathing, or you 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 basically um, uh, have symptoms that that won't um, abate, you, you're eligible for this treatment, and it's it's uh, it's very effective. Excellent. So much has also been made in recent weeks is about the booster shot or the third dose of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine as well. So how does that sort of play into the picture then? Right. It's a, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I, don't, I wonder if this is really a booster shot or if this is just going to be the third shot in this segment of, uh, of vaccinations that we need to get. Uh, it's starting to kind of look like like, uh, like that. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, to, when you get vaccinated for a specific virus to get multiple injections over a period of time, as, as much as six months. So this is, again, in vaccinology, this is, this is not surprising. Um, what, what, um, what this is based on is some data that Pfizer, um, that Pfizer really obtained uh, with, with the country of uh, Israel, actually. Uh, so um, Israel was very interested in getting their population vaccinated very early in the pandemic. Uh, and they, they, they essentially made an agreement with Pfizer very early on that they would give them all of their data uh, for the vaccine. So that's what they did. And what's been great about this is, is we've learned a lot about uh, a lot about the, vac the vaccine, how effective it's been uh, in that population. But what they said, but what they um, started to notice, because because again, a, a substantial number of their uh, people in their population were vaccinated very early in the pandemic, is they were starting to see clinically these things called breakthrough infections. So people that were vaccinated that were getting um, the infection. So this this wouldn't have been so wouldn't have been surprising, right? Because because the the vaccine the effectiveness is ninety five percent. So there's still going to be a certain number of, of people that are going to have the vaccine that are still, we're, we're expected to get infected. But this percentage, the percentage of people getting infected with the vaccine, seemed to be much higher than five percent. And uh, and when this was studied in the Israeli population, it was recognized to be perhaps two or three uh, times uh, uh, more frequent than what what was expected. So then uh, they, they began uh, doing studies, immunity studies, and trying to figure out what was happening. And the, the, the realization was is that, that immunity appeared to be waning 
um, over time in people that had gotten the, 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 the vaccines early on. So as much as, as you got into the sixth, seventh month after your uh, first two vaccines with either Moderna or Pfizer, uh, that you would be, um, you, you, your immunity would, wouldn't be quite as, quite as stellar as, as we had hoped. And so um, recognizing this, um, that they went in and, and went ahead and have started um, trying a, th a third uh, vaccine and, um, and, and studying this. So I think that the data looks like it's, it's coming along. Uh, the initial results um, are positive, but I think, I think everyone's uh, watching and waiting what's going on uh, uh, in Israel with this, essentially this, this uh, amazing human experiment. Well, because I think, you know, the, the terms booster and, and third dose have been tossed around. And so can you use them interchangeably? Because I think there is a little bit of confusion around what this might mean, you know, in America once they get some yeah. data as well. Yeah, I think of, um, I guess I think of a booster as something that after you've been fully vaccinated, uh, that, that you know, many years down the road, uh, you, you know, you, you would need, uh, again, a boost for your, for your immune system. So typically you would think of something five or 10 years out, perhaps. Um, this, I think, is still this. I think we're still defining the, the number of injections that are really going to be required to get full immunity. And and again, based on what, what we're seeing in Israel, perhaps the, the number is actually going to be three. And this is not surprising. This is this is actually not uncommon in fact with vaccines. So there are some some people in America who are you know compromised and otherwise who have been encouraged to get kind of the a third shot already. Then, what who are these groups of people and you know and, and what in, in particular what makes them more susceptible or why is it being recommended to get a third shot already? Right. Yeah. So so if you if you have uh, if if your immune system isn't fully functional, you can already get this third shot, um, which I think is is fantastic. So. Any any type of any type of disease you have, where uh, where your immune system uh, either either because of the process of the disease in your body or the therapies that you're taking are making you uh, making your immune system be suppressed, you can get this third shot. So there's a number of people that have autoimmune diseases, um, chronic inflammatory diseases that take uh, broad spectrum. Uh, uh, Drugs that that suppress their immune system, they would be they would be available they would be uh, able to get this uh, third dose now. Um, and there's a number of people that have diseases um, where their immune system, either genetically or uh, through other means, doesn't function properly. They also can get uh, can get this shot. And there's a large number of diseases that that fit in that bucket. When, when do experts anticipate that everyone will be able to start getting these boosters or should be starting to get these boosters? Yeah, so I, that's a great question. And, and I think especially because, you know, because if immunity starts waning at six months, many people that were vaccinated in January and February are, are wondering, right, you know, is, is, you know, is this going to lead to increased breakthrough infections here in the United States? And perhaps, perhaps it already is, right? Um, so, um, so I know I know there's a lot of interest in this, and there's a there's um, th there's a lot of discussion uh, on this particular topic. Uh, Pfizer has already um, they published a paper last week uh, in a bioarchives uh, type journal where they they they've shown the effectiveness of the potential effectiveness of a third dose, uh, and this is now being taken under consideration by uh, by the FDA. So I know there's a lot of uh, interest in this, and again, maybe doing an emergency use for a, a third dose. Uh, in the very near term. Uh, I, I would expect to hear something very soon, actually. That's good to know. 
Well, I think another big question people have are, you know, if if you are getting the third dose, do you need to get the same kind of shot you got at first? So say if you got Pfizer, do you need to make sure that you get Pfizer and, you know, not Moderna? You know, what are, what are, what are, what are the recommendations? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And there have actually been some mixes and matches done, um, some intentionally, some not intentionally. And there doesn't seem to be uh, any data to suggest that there's any problems doing mixing and matching. Um, I mean, if I, if, you know, I think, it just make i think it's the simplest thing is if you got the moderna get a third dose of moderna um but but if you if you if you get the pfizer i don't think there there's really much of a problem the the basic way that the vaccines work um is is very similar so on august 23rd the fda granted full approval of the pfizer vaccine for people ages 16 and older so what does full approval mean yeah this is a very this is was very important um Usually, I mean, because of the the because of the the really problematic nature of this pandemic, uh, obviously, the, we needed va vaccines to roll out very quickly, and we did. Um, still, very impressed with how well this was actually done, the safety that was actually uh, uh, that was ensured, uh, and and how uh, how carefully the FDA reviewed these applications, these emergency use applications uh, last fall. What was missing, of course, was the ability to watch these vaccinated people over some period of time and to make sure, again, really looking at efficacy and really more safety, right, to make sure that these things are safe. And now, now the FDA has, has literally, literally hundreds of millions of people have received these doses. Uh, and there's real world uh, data around the world uh, that, that show the, the continued effectiveness, effectiveness of these vaccines and the safety as well. Uh, they, they've continued to, 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 uh, to really prove to be uh, nearly completely safe. Uh, and I think that that's really, I think that's really the, really the most important thing. So for then for the FDA to about to, again, they're in a position to carefully evaluate all of these, all of these data from not only the United States, but around the world. Uh, and they, they're in a position to make a, a a determination, I think, where they can be fairly certain that this is safe. And so that's what they did. Now, did the full approval, did that process take longer or shorter than normal? Or, you know, I, I think that's a lot of people are also curious about that. Yeah, it's, it, it is shorter than normal, but you have to realize too that, that, that the number of people that are exposed to the virus is much higher too. So that, that kind of that contraction of time uh, for the approval I, I think is is outweighed by the fact that that there's so many people that are that are exposed to the virus, um, and so instead of having to do a study where it's a rare disease where you have to do this over maybe a decade to actually get a, a vaccine improved, uh, the, the data that that they can acquire, the real world data that they can acquire, um, is so overwhelming that I think the short term the short time frame of this is, is totally reasonable. If people were hesitant to get vaccinated uh, because it was only available under the emergency use authorization, will FDA approval help change this? Yeah, again, so again, I think what what it's what it suggests is that that it, again, it's a group of, of of really outstanding scientists and physicians that get together that 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 very carefully weigh the data. They don't give these approvals uh, lightly. And if this is something where you just wanted to make sure that there was longer term safety on this, there essentially is. So I, I would hope that this would, if there were people still sitting on the fence or still wondering, um, you know, if this is safe, 
I, I think I think it is, and and they should really um, they should really get the vaccine. Yeah, I know a lot of parents are wondering too because right now the the vaccine for uh, kids ages twelve to sixteen is still only used still only available under emergency use authorization. Um, why was the vaccine not given full approval yet for that age group? And is there kind of a timeline for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so because because the emergency approval for the 12 to 16 year old group was delayed, they don't have as much real world data on that group yet, uh, and they don't have this over a period of time. So that that's that will that will naturally delay um, the full approval uh, with this particular group uh, to to probably the end of this year or beginning of next year. So are you able to speak to a timeline for FDA approval of the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines? Right. So both of them um, obviously uh, are, are working to apply. And I it, it, it and wouldn't surprise me if, if there was full approval for both of these vaccines in the near term. They were all given emergency use authorization within a month of each other, uh, last, uh, late last fall and last winter. Uh, and I'm I'm certain the regulatory processes are, are moving forward with those vaccines as well. They're equally as effective um, as, uh, or nearly equally as effective as Pfizer. And so I, I would expect them to be approved. So I think parents are also wondering, you know, what, what the timeline is between kids between the ages of five and 12, when they might be eligible for COVID-19 vaccines. What's kind of the latest on that? Yeah. So, so here the, the tricky part is actually, uh, so the dose has to be adjusted for, for, uh, for children. Uh, they're smaller, their metabolism is different. Uh, every, everything is different. They're not just, as they say, they're not just little people. They're, 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 uh, they're kids. And, um, so I think there's been great care in, uh, in, in designing trials to make sure that they're safe. I think that that's probably the, the most important aspect here is to ensure safety. And so there are trials now that are that are ongoing uh, with this age group. And again, they're enrolling. Um, they were rolled out later. I think they, again, I think the goal was to make sure that things were completely safe in, in adults uh, before actually starting these trials in kids. Um, but we should see, we should see the trial should wrap up um, this fall and we should see some, uh, some emergency use authorization uh, either late this year or early next year. Are there uh, any other reasons or any other reasons why kids might not be eligible for the vaccine then um, right away then after it's emergency use author emergency use authorization? No, I, I don't think I don't think there should be. I think I, I think once this once this is once this is rolled out, this will very much be um, it'll be very much like the same type of rollout that we saw with adults and then uh, and then uh, teenagers as well. Excellent. Are there any other final thoughts or closing thoughts or things that you want to share with uh, everyone today? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I realize uh, what a, a challenging time uh, this is, and that it's it seems like it seems like um, scientists and physicians are still learning about this virus, and and um, uh, as as we try and move ahead, uh, and that's the case. And I think I think it's important to to pay attention to. Um, our, our governmental experts, our, our experts within our, our health systems, um, that, that are thinking about this very carefully and, and, and taking care of um, taking care of all of us, basically. Yeah. Um, and know that we're still um, we're still in a position where we're where we're still learning about this particular uh, virus. Uh, but so far, I think the steps that have taken, especially toward vaccines, 
uh, and some of the, uh, I think, therapies that, that are quite effective, like monoclonal antibodies, uh, have been um, really breathtaking. And, uh, and we're, we're very fortunate to, to have gotten this far this quickly. And, um, and just keep paying attention to, uh, to uh, what we're learning um, as, as time moves forward. And, uh, and, and if you're over uh, the age of 12, please get vaccinated. Excellent. Well, Dr. Stappenbach, thank you so much. You've been so great to talk to, and this has been so informative, and I, we appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.